All right, Galatians 4, 12 through 19. So we're going to be talking... Um, let's see if I can get this to work. There we go. So we're going to be talking... Uh, we're in chapter 4 of Galatians. Uh, we've, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about freedom. Um, that's one of the things that Paul's theme is, the rest of this chapter, is, is what is freedom. And, and in fact, what we're going to be talking about is true freedom. We're going to start today and we're going to end... Uh, next week. Now, obviously, this is stating the obvious that most we all want to be free. Every human being in this planet wants to be free. And, and in fact, most of us in this room would probably consider ourselves to be free living here in the United States of America. But if you ever, and this is what we want to ask the question, if you ever ask yourself this question, what does it mean to be truly free? So this is my question to you to start this morning. We want to talk this out. What if a person is truly free, what, is that, what does that mean? Tell me what your definition of, of true freedom is. Retirement. Retirement. <laughs> I don't know about that. Okay, somebody, what, it, what, is, what, is it, what do you have to have to be truly free? A life without restrictions. Okay, a life without restrictions. Okay. Huh? No bondage. Okay, y'all are just doing that... You know what y'all are doing there? You're just giving me the opposite of freedom. I don't want to know the opposite. I want to know the attributes of true freedom, not what the opposites of it are. What are the attributes of true freedom? What does a person have to have to be truly free? How about you give up yourself and you rely totally on Jesus? Okay, well, that's, that's really nice in the spiritual realm, but just give me phys physically. Forget spiritual. Let's set aside spiritual for a second. Huh? Happiness. Okay, you need to be happy. All right, that's a good one. Somebody. Okay, again, let's put spiritual aside. Let's just focus on just to be free. Forget Christian, non-Christian. You just want to be free. No inhibitions. No inhibitions, okay? There's nothing, no restraints holding your back. Contentment. Contentment or happiness. The problem with freedom is that there's no restrictions and you can do anything you want and you can encroach on the freedoms of other people. So that, therefore, that's not freedom. Okay. All right, anybody else? Okay, and that's good. Making making yeah. choice, being able to make choices based on what's good for you. Um, let me ask you a question: Are we free? No. Would you consider us here in America today? Are you are you completely truly free? No. What? Why life, aren't you? Life without laws. <coughs> without what? Laws. Because the state can impose okay. Are you free? Are you free not to pay your taxes? Well, you you can, but then you won't be free anymore, right? Yeah, you won't be free very long. You'll be free for about you free for about a month till they come find you. Um, are you free to, you know, go anywhere you want? Are you really? You can go anywhere you want. I don't think so. Not an airport. <laughs> Not necessarily free to go wherever you want. You know, I mean, obviously, what I want you to, huh? Scared of the future. Okay. Not being scared. Not being scared. You know, talking about freedom. Yep. We don't have we don't have the the luxury of not being scared of what's going to happen to you next. Right. Okay. I think, you know, we, we talk, we use, the reason I bring this up this morning is because we talk a lot about 
we talk a lot about being free, right? But I don't think sometimes we really think it through. What, is, what does it really mean uh, to be truly free? I'm going to give you a definition of freedom. You are truly free when you have the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to do what will give you joy or make you happy or give you contentment, and it'll leave you with absolutely no regrets. Do you think there's people out there today that, are, that have the opportunity to do what they want to do, they have the ability to do what they want to do, they have the desire to do what they want to do, and what they don't understand is what they're doing is going to kill them? Are you with me? So it's not enough just to have the opportunity to do something, the ability to do it, the desire to do it. you got to do it and know that a thousand years from now, that same thing is still going to make you happy. It's not going to kill you. Everybody with me? So what I want to do is I want to look through these real quickly and just kind of look at some of these. Let's look first at opportunity. Now, we're, of course, in this class, we're concerned with spiritual freedom. We're not, the Bible's not really concerned at all with physical freedom. That means nothing to it. We're concerned with spiritual freedom. But I want to start with a physical example, okay, just to kind of get this uh, going. So let's take, for example, skydiving. Suppose that you, uh, you've got a desire to go skydiving. And I notice I said you, not me, because i got no desire to jump out of an airplane. Um, so, so let's say you're on your way to the airport and you're going you're gonna to go up for your first jump. Everything's planned. Uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to be there at a certain time. The plane's going to leave at a certain time. And on the way there, your car breaks down. So you're out. You're miles from there. You've got to wait for the tow truck. Now, again, are you free to jump? Yes or no? Well, how, how are you free to jump? You broke down on the side of a road. How are you going to jump out of a plane? You can jump out of your car. No. So, so you, the point is, you're not, you're not free to jump because you don't have the opportunity, right? If, to, if you want to be free to do something, you've got to have the opportunity to do it, right? Um, so, in, in a sense, one aspect of freedom is the opportunity, or, or you could be in bondage to the lack of opportunity. Now, again, we could extrapolate this to multiple situations. Although we consider ourselves free, the fact is there are many things in life that we just don't have the opportunity to do. Okay, I mean, just, just you know, there's just certain things in life you just don't have the opportunity uh, to, to do. Um, the second one is, of course, ability. Now think about skydiving. Suppose you make it to the airport, you get there, you, you're all excited, you've got this desire to go skydiving, and you get there, and the instructor says, well, man, have you had any training? Well, no. Do you know how to pull the cord? No. Do you know what to do in case you go into a spin? Well, no. Well, what's, this, what's that guy going to say? Well, yeah, yeah, see you later, right? In, in other words, you've, you've got the opportunity. It's there. It's in front of you. But the fact is you, you have no ability. You, you're, you're in bondage to your lack of ability um, to do something. Again, we could, the Dallas Cowboys, think about this, Dallas Cowboys could come to Tallahassee and have open tryouts, right? And anybody, everybody can come. I could go. I've got the opportunity to play for the Dallas Cowboys. Am I ever going to play for the Dallas Cowboys? No. no. Why? Because I don't have the ability. Too old, too little, too slow, too lots of things. But the point is, the opportunity is there, but I don't have the ability to do it. So again, or am I? I haven't developed a 
Yeah. So I'm not free to play for the Dallas Cowboys, am I? Right? I just don't have that. Now, let's look at the third one. The third one is desire. Now, this one is really important. Um, you can have the opportunity to do something. You can have the, even the ability to do it. Let's take skydiving. I have the opportunity to do it. I could go get trained and have the ability to do it. What am I missing? I got no desire to do it whatsoever. It just means it's, it, it just, it's not there. So I'm not going to do it. Now, um, so let's look at that desire for just a second. So let's, again, look at this way. Let's suppose you make it to the airport. You've been to school. You've been trained. You have all the required abilities. And you get in the plane and you take off. And you are super excited until they open the door. And then they open the door and you look down and all that desire that you had to jump out of an airplane completely leaves you. It's gone. And it's replaced with this just horrific fear of, of dying, right? Now, the opportunity is there. The ability is there. But what have you lost? You've lost the want to. You've lost the desire. Now, here's an interesting thing about this. The interesting thing, um, thing about freedom is desire is that you might go ahead and jump anyway. If your wife or your girlfriend's in the plane and, and, and you know, you might say, man, even if I die, I cannot be shamed in front of her, right? <laughs> so you might, as scared as you are, and that desire to jump has completely left you, you might, the desire not to be humiliated, might force you to go ahead and, and jump. Now, do you want to jump? No, you don't. Why do you jump? Because you're being constrained by something else. The fear of humiliation, the fear, the fear of shame. Now, by the way, that's not freedom. See, when you're being forced to do something by outside pressure, is that freedom? No, it's not at all. See, that's, that's the thing. See, there's a lot of things we do, and we, we walk around like we're free, but really we're doing it because we're being, we're being pressured by outside constraints, forcing us to do it. That's bondage. That's the exact opposite of freedom. Is do, you're doing something you don't want to do. When I did it, I had the desire. It was a long time. desire in my heart to do it. I did it. I went through with it. Paid my money first. Had I not paid my money first, I may have chickened out. But I knew that I had already paid my money. But when that door opened, I said, let's go. Yeah. And we went. But I don't have that desire. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a wonderful experience. I landed on my feet, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. But I, I had out there. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. You know, I have to take the biblical uh, approach to that, in that, in that um, I, I would be taught to be humble. So humility doesn't, wouldn't bother me. No, humiliation, you just say, I'm right. humiliated. I'm okay. humiliated. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're a better man than me, so let's, all right. Now, but think about it this way. You remember the, the scene in the Bible with Herod and his stepdaughter? Y'all remember that? John the Baptist in prison and, and um, <coughs> Salome or whatever her name was, and she performs for Herod, and he says, I'll give you, you know, anything. And she said, well, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now, it's the same kind of situation. Herod did not want to kill John the Baptist, but he did it. Why? Because he didn't want to be shamed in front of his, front of his guests. He acted and he did something, but it was not what he wanted to do. He wasn't free in what he did. She knew this yeah, right. 
And by the way, that's what a lot of professing Christians do, keeping the commandments of the Bible. There's a lot of people walking around and they're obeying the Bible. Don't do this, don't do that, do this. But they, that's not in the inside. They don't really want to do that. <clears throat> They'd really rather be off doing something else. But they do it because maybe they're constrained by fear of hell. They're constrained by social pressures. They're constrained by uh, maybe they're trying to impress someone or maybe they don't want to let someone down like their wife or their, or their parents. So they're going through these outward motions of obedience, but inside it's not really who they are. They don't really, they, they'd rather be, you know, they're at church, but they're thinking, man, I'd much rather be out in the water. They're at church, but I'd much rather be in the hunting woods. I love that way more than I love this. I'm here because of a lot of different reasons. Again, that's not freedom, guys. That's not freedom. You see, freedom is having not only the opportunity to do it, but having the ability and the desire to do it, right? That's, that's freedom. I want to be here. I want to be serving God. I want to be obeying the Bible. But a lot of people are doing it, and they, from the outside, they look good. But the fact is, on the inside, they're being constrained by other things. That's not freedom. That's bondage, okay? Now, so if you don't have the desire to do a thing, you're not really free to do it. Now, again, you may muster the willpower, even to do what you don't want to do. So we all do that, right? Whether you're dieting or whether you're exercising or sometimes you're doing things, you muster the willpower, but you don't really want to be doing it. You're doing it for other reasons. You're not really free. Now, there is a, so there's a constraint or a pressure on us forcing us to do things down deep inside we don't really want to do. That's not freedom. That's, that's bondage. Now, there's one more aspect of freedom that we don't often think about. And that is this, and that is, and a couple people brought it up, and that is the future, okay? I was reading someone, something in the paper the other day about a, a, a gay person that came out and said, I'm gay. And, and what, if you looked at those first three things, you would ask, do you have the opportunity to live the way you want in America? Yes, you do. Do you have the ability to live the way you want and get married to a person of another sex, I mean, of the same sex in America, do you? Yes, you do. Do those people have the desire to do thing, that thing? Yes. But what they don't understand is what they're doing is going to kill them. They don't understand that. You see what I'm saying? They don't think that, they don't know that when they die a thousand years from now, that thing that made them happy a thousand years ago is going to be the biggest, one of the biggest regrets of their life. So being truly free says, not only do I have the opportunity to do something, the ability to do it, the desire to do it, but when I do it, I'm never going to regret it. That's freedom, okay? Um, think about this. Suppose, go back to the skydiving. Suppose you go to the airport. you got no obstacles. You have all the abilities you need. You look out the door of the plane. The desire is still there, man. You can't wait to jump. So you've got freedom of opportunity, freedom of ability, freedom of desire, and you jump. And unbeknownst to you, that parachute will never open. Now, are you free? <laughs> yeah, in a few minutes, you are going to regret seriously that you ever had the desire to get in an airplane and jump. Now, so again, you, you feel free, right? Man, I'm, 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 I'm free falling. This is the freest I've ever been. But in a few minutes, it's going to kill you. See, that's not freedom. 
you're actually in bondage to destruction. You, you have no clue what's about to, to happen to you. So you think about, is that person free? And Well, in three senses or areas, yes, they are. But in that fourth critical sense of, of having no regrets, they're not free at all. In fact, what you're doing is going to kill you. And whether you know it or not, you're in bondage to uh, destruction. So in order to be truly free or fully free, it's not enough just to have the opportunity, the ability, and the desire, the acts that you desire and perform cannot result in regrets for you to be truly free. By the way, that's why it's so naive for, for a Christian to envy the freedom of the world. You look out there and you see people who maybe are, are pitching themselves out of the proverbial plane, uh, out, out of the window of sin. They're going to exult for a season in the exhilaration of free-fall sex or free-fall greed or free-fall drugs or free-fall luxury. But what they don't know is what they're doing is going to kill them. They're not free at all. They're in bondage to destruction. Um, so true freedom, again, is not just the opportunity and the ability uh, to do what you want to do. It's the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to do what you will still make you a happy a thousand years from now. Okay, it, You've got to know that. I mean, you'll never be able to do anything because there's always some sort of danger in everything you do. Walking out that door, I mean, I could trip over the threshold there and break my leg. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm not. Walk out the door. Yeah, well, I, th I think you're kind of, I don't really see it that way. In fact, we were, t who, who, Kathy, you and I were talking about this. Oh, we were talking about this the other night because our son, youngest son plays soccer and there was a boy that got killed playing soccer. They Two boys ran into each other and, it killed one of them, and and as a parent, you're like, well, you know, immediately you think, well, my son plays soccer, right? But that's that's a one in a billion, right? In fact, I got more chance of dying um, when I go out the door here and getting a, and, uh, you know, I probably got more chance of falling on those stairs and dying than probably than that happening. Um, I don't think I don't think it's the I mean, I I understand what you're saying, but I mean, I just don't think we can live that way, right? I mean, the fact is, what I'm talking about is something... And by the way, I'm, keep in mind, this is a physical example. I'm not concerned with the physical at all. Don't, don't get pulled away in the physical. The Bible's not concerned about your physical freedom whatsoever. None. It's concerned about what? Your spiritual freedom. Your spiritual freedom. And by the way, do you understand that following Christ, I'm still going to go through trials and tribulations and suffering? But there's a difference when I'm following Him and going through it than when I'm going through it as a non-believer. And we'll talk about that a little bit um, earlier. So I understand what you're saying. This is like, by the way, this is like any analogy. If You, you can take any analogy too far. Right? Any analogy, you can take it too far. When the Bible says that um, Christ is a good shepherd, right? That's an analogy. But you, you can take that analogy too far. Does, does the shepherd, the shepherd uh, waters and feeds the sheep, right? You know, just cry. You know what I'm saying? You can take any analogy a little bit too far. So let's don't take that too far on the physical side. Let's keep in mind that what we're talking about here today is, is, is spiritual. So that is, by the way, why Christians are the freest people in the world. Because if you trust in Jesus and you treasure Him above all else, you'll still be glad of that a thousand years from now. Trust me. There's going to be no regrets um, with Jesus. That is why it is only Christians who are truly free indeed. Now, 
What I want to remind us, though, is even as Christians, there are still things inside of us that inhibit us from being truly free. Okay? Um, I was talking about at the festival last night, I was talking with somebody about this, that we are, we're all in different stages of maturity and growth in Christ, right? So we all have things in us that still being, the Holy Spirit's still dealing with. There's still desires in us that are holding us back from being truly, uh, truly free. Uh, for example, the desire to be self-made. The desire to run our own lives. Is it, did, would everybody here agree that almost all of us still have the desire in us to make our own decisions, to run our own lives, to be our own man or our own woman? That, that is down deep inside of us, right? Um, and as long as these desires are there, they're a constant danger for us. Because Satan will use those desires that we have left over from our old nature, from the flesh, He'll use those desires to draw us back into bondage. And so what we're going to see in the remainder of the verses in chapter 4, Paul is going to continue to fight with all his might to expose the teaching of the Judaizers, to expose the teachings of Satan for what it really is, and that is slavery, trying to draw us back into being self-made, self-righteous people instead of depending on Christ. So let's go look at verses 12 through 15. Now... Paul has given us so far a lot of biblical and theological arguments. Now he's going to add one from experience, just from real life. And let's read what he says in verses 12 through 15. He says this, Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them uh, to me. Now, this is an interesting scripture. Time and time again in the New Testament, we see Paul being directed by the Holy Spirit. For example, Acts 13.2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to send Paul and Barnabas out on a mission, separate them and, and send them out. In Acts 16.6, they went. Paul is traveling through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And, and you know why he was there? It says he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So he's going through one region because the Holy Spirit said, don't go over there. I don't want you over there right now. So sometimes he tells through the Holy Spirit to go, and sometimes he tells through the Holy Spirit to don't go. Everybody with me? But he's being guided by who? The Holy Spirit. But you'll notice in today's passage, Paul doesn't say, because of the Holy Spirit's direction, I preach the gospel. What, what was the reason he stopped there to preach the gospel? Because he got sick. Because He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. Evidently, Paul's plans did not include stopping there. He had something else on his mind. He was going somewhere else. But he comes to this area of Galatia, and he got sick. He had some kind of bodily ailment. His plans were interrupted because of sickness. Now, by the way, we could stay for an hour right here because <laughs> there's so many truths in that right there. Uh, But let me just say this. Don't ever think 
that God is not in control of every moment, every situation, every decision that you make. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, I can have plans, I'm going to go there, and the Lord can say, mm, that ain't going to happen, son. <laughs> Come over here, i got something else for you to do. And by the way, sometimes he'll guide you through the Word. Sometimes he'll guide you through an inner voice, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Sometimes he'll guide you by making you sick, or allowing you to get sick, let me put it that way. He'll allow a trial or a sickness or some kind of suffering to come upon you because he wants to take you through. He wants to put you in a place to teach you something or allow you to teach somebody else something. Okay? So, what's the old adage we always say? God works in? That is absolutely true. What you don't ever forget is it's always God working. God's always working. It's not an accident. It's not, you know, whatever happens, he's allowing it to happen. If you're a Christian and you've given yourself over to him, he's always in control. Okay? And that's exactly what happened here with Paul. Paul gets sick, and God uses that sickness for him to preach the gospel to the Galatians, which evidently wasn't in Paul's plans. So again, he stops in the region of Galatia. He's planning on going somewhere else, but he has a problem with his eyes. And it's a problem that is bad enough. Now, I don't know what it was. Could you imagine? Evidently, it was bad enough that it... It took other people to take care of him. One of the guys was, was, I was looking at one of the things, and it says, in effect, could you imagine Paul saying this? He says, do you, do you recall how my plans to move on were interrupted because of that terrible attack in my eyes, how they were red and infected and filled with pus? Remember, back then, there's, there's no antibiotics. So something happened to him where his eyes... By the way, he had some kind of eye problem. We're almost certain of that because he didn't write his own letters. When he did write, he had, you'll, you'll notice a couple times he said, see how I signed this letter in such large letters. When he did write, he had to write very big so he could see what he was writing. So he had some kind of eye problem. But it wasn't an eye problem where I couldn't just see because, in fact, look what he says. Verses 14, and though my condition was a trial to who? To you. In other words, whatever was wrong with his eyes, it was a trial to other people. Somebody had to take him in. Somebody had to take care of him. It wasn't just this idea that I can't see, right? I mean, he had something wrong with him. Now watch what he says. Why do you think, by the way, that Paul is bringing this up? Well, I think, think about it for just a second. Here comes this guy into your town. And he's preaching the good news of this sovereign and all-powerful God who loves you and came to earth to die for you. If you'll just give your all to Christ, if you'll trust Him, He'll, he'll save you. And this preacher is preaching and he's got pus running out of his eyes. Now, here's my question. Do you listen to the message or are you revolted by the messenger? What do you think? What if we had a, what if we had a preacher come in today to preach? And he stands up and starts preaching, and he's got, I mean, just literally pus. He can't see pus is around. I mean, what, can you, do you listen to the message? It's, would, it be, would it be hard? It'd be kind of hard, wouldn't it? See, the fact is, here's the point is, they did listen. Right? They, not only did they listen, listen, they received the message with faith. In other words, when they heard the message originally, they didn't, they didn't receive it because of Paul's looks. They didn't receive it because of his demeanor. They didn't receive it because of his great oratory. In fact, if anything, his sickness disinclined them to believe. Right? 
you were, they were disinclined not to listen or inclined not to listen. They were inclined to think, man, there's got to be a better preacher than this somewhere that we can go. See, they didn't do any of that. They heard the message. So, so not, again, not only was his message not well packaged, he as himself was a burden to them. But all of that didn't matter. They believed anyway because the Spirit gave them ears to hear and eyes to, to see. In fact, not only did they not despise Paul, Paul says, you received me like an angel. You treated me like Christ Jesus himself. So, and again, why? Because they saw past the messenger and the Spirit gave them eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of the gospel. The gospel persuaded them. The gospel satisfied them. You know, it, it was what was valuable, not the man, not the messenger. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, he's thinking, man, if I could just bring to their memory how they believed at the very beginning, how powerful they saw the gospel and how beautiful they saw the gospel at the very beginning, I know if they could remember that, they'd stop being attracted by these men who want them to rely on their own righteousness. See what he's doing? He's, he's trying to take them back to uh, the beginning because in the beginning, they weren't interested in what others thought. They weren't interested in the praise of men. They saw the beauty of the gospel and that was enough. But something, of course, has changed. Look at verses 16 and 17. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Now, let me, this is kind of a... The Greek here in the English translation makes this a little bit hard to understand. Uh, they, of course, is who? <coughs> the Judaizers that are coming into town and saying, oh, believing in the gospel is not enough. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe the Passover. You need to observe all these different laws and stuff. Then you'll be really saved. Then you'll be a, a, a true Jew. Um, now, watch what Paul says about these Judaizers, and he uncovers their motive. Okay, And this is what he says. They make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you will make much of them. So the first thing he says is that the Judaizers are motivated by love for human praise. In other words, they want to be made much of. They want people to look at them and pat them on the back and tell them, man, y'all are the most spiritual people we've ever seen. We want to listen. They, everybody see that? They want to be made much of. Um, Paul says this, they want to shut you out. What he's saying here is that in, in order to get this kind of attention, the Judaizers tell the Galatians they'll be shut out from God's blessing if they don't accept their teaching of works. So they're saying, look, you need to listen to us. Don't just listen to the gospel. Don't just listen to Paul. You need to listen to us. We know what's right. Okay. So they want to be made much of, and to do that, they tell the Galatians you'll be shut out from God's blessing if you don't do things the way we say. So, so every Galatian Gentile who capitulates and gets circumcised in hopes of making points with God is just another notch in the Judaizers' belt. If they can convince the Gentiles to become Jews, it validates them. It makes them look good. It embellishes their own uh, pride. Um, but again, notice how the Jews... Now, I want you to notice this. Notice how the Judaizers work. What do you think they use to win the Gentile Galatians over? Well, Paul says, they make much of you. Okay? In other words, they come into the church and they play on human ego. Now, remember what we talked about earlier. Remember I said all of us have some leftover desires inside of us that aren't right. The desire to be self-made, right? 
the desire to be a captain of our own ship, the desire to make our own decisions. Well, so what the Judaizers do, they come in and they play on that. They play on that those leftover desires that you have of every human being to be praised, to be made much of, right? So, and by the way, this shouldn't be surprising to us at all. Theology that's propagated by human religion is always rooted in pride. Let me say that again. Theology that is propagated by human religion is always rooted in pride. It will always boost the human ego. It will always come to you and pat you on the back and say, you can do it. If you'll just go through these rituals, if you'll just dress this way, if you'll just say these words once a day, if you'll just, if you'll just, it's always you, 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 you. It's playing on your pride, patting you on the back, making much of you. See, it always works with our innate desire to be made much of. Listen, don't kid yourself. Satan is very, very, he is an angel. Does everybody understand that? You understand that angels are above men? Satan is smarter than any human being that's ever walked this planet. He's very, very, very smart. And he knows how to get us, and he gets us by playing on the desires that each one of us already have in our hearts. Okay? Remember what James said? By the way, Satan doesn't have the power to create a desire in you. He doesn't have that power. He uses the desires that are already inside of you. That's how he tempts you. James puts it this... Um, by the way, let me back up just one second. Jesus, if you don't believe that we have these desires, look what Jesus said. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from God? He was talking to the Pharisees. He's saying your problem is you want to be made much of by other people. You want other people to pat you on the back instead of God patting you on the back. He says you want to get glory from other men. You see, there's these desires inside of us that we want people to say how great we are. We want to be seen as good people, great people, nice people, whatever the case may be. Um, so just as naturally as apples fall to earth, human beings gravitate toward ideas and actions which make them look good and resist ideas and actions which make them look small. So in one sense, saving faith is the easiest thing in the world. It's as easy as just turning yourself over the potter and being clay in his hands. But in another sense, it's the hardest thing in the world because human clay hates giving up control. We just hate it. Something down deep inside. And again, as I mentioned earlier, would we all agree we all have this in us to some extent? Okay. As unbelievers, we're full of it. But even as believers, it, it takes time to rid ourselves of that. We've all got remnants uh, in it uh, of one to some extent or another. So when the Judaizers come in, it's not surprising that they should find a foothold for their, heart, for their false teaching in the hearts of the Galatian converts, just like cults do, uh, or all egocentric fads do. Because um, here's the thing, false teachers never, they don't oppose the pride that's left in you, they cater to it. Let me say that again, a false teacher will come in and they don't oppose the pride that's left in you, they cater to it. They know that each one of us has something in us that wants to be self-made, self in, in, to, to be in control of our own destinies. And so a false teacher will always take the Bible and twist it to cater to that, uh, to cater to that pride. Again, we all know it's wrong, but we all have it to one 
uh, degree or another. And so what the Judaizers did was they offered the law as a means of enjoying your pride in a morally uh, accepting uh, appealing way. Okay? Um, so, so Satan and the Ju Judaizers used this human desire and they used it to tempt the Galatians to fall back into legalism to rely on themselves instead of God. Now, let's wrap it all up right here. How'd I go back? Okay. Do we all have desire... Go back to my definition. True freedom is what? you got to have the opportunity, the ability, and the desire, desire to do what's going to make you happy a thousand years from now, right? But would we all agree that as human beings, we have desires that are, op that are against that? You know, we know we should have a desire to give everything to God. But we all have these leftover desires inside of us that want to go the other way. I can do it. I don't need to talk to God about this when I got enough sense to do this on my own, right? We all have desires to go the way. Now, here's the question. How do we overcome these desires? How do we get rid of them so that we can be truly free? How do we get rid of these leftover things that's in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds that are, not, that are actually working against true freedom as opposed to working for it? In other words, how do we come to the point where we not only have the opportunity to obey God, the ability to obey God, but the desire to obey God. How do we come to that point? In other words, how can we be truly free? Well, Paul is going to tell us. Okay? Of course, you knew that was coming. And he tells us in verse 19, he says this, It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. And here he gives us the key. I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. That's the key right there. Christ has to be formed in us. He, Paul, John said it this way, I must decrease, he must increase. That's the way it's inside of each one of us. The old fleshly desires that make Derek want to, the pride, the, the, the I want to be self-made, self-righteous, that has to continually go away and what replaces that christ formed in me now what does it mean christ formed in you somebody tell me what that means it's a it's a it's a pretty simple phrase but what does it mean go ahead go ahead okay but how, what does that look like in real life Okay, and then what, what is the result of that? What replaces it? You want His will. Okay. You understand His will is actually in your trust. Okay, all right. So the things that you want are replaced by things that He wants. The way that you see things are replaced by the way that He sees things. The way, the, 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 you know, the, the attributes in your life that are all Derek, 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 are replaced by attributes that are all Christ, Christ, Christ. It literally, he's being formed in you. But um, I think sometimes non-Christians don't understand that for us, that that um, process is about relationship mm -hmm. and not possession. Absolutely. In fact, we'll talk about that here in just one quick second. <laughs> what, what Paul is talking about here is a quest to be shaped from within by the presence of the living Christ. That, and by the way, when this happens, the change is so radical, it's so dramatic that even how you think 
changes. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12 too? Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. See, when Christ comes and Christ is formed in us, how we think literally changes. Things that used to be important, it's not as important anymore. You know, think, things that you think, man, I've got to make this much money. I've got to have this kind of job. I've got to do... Those things all of a sudden just don't, just don't mean anything anymore. And all of a sudden, the way Christ, it's all about Him. What does He think? What does He want? What does He need? What does He desire? I mean, it, it begins to take over our lives. It changes the way that we, uh, way that we think. <laughs> Last Sunday morning, there was a lady that stayed to talk with me after the class. And she said something that was really interesting. She was saying that she's a new Christian. And she was saying that, you know, she'll go through bad days or she'll go through a trial. And immediately she'll say, I need a scripture. Anybody ever been there? I need a scripture. And so you look for a scripture. Well, what you end up doing is you take a scripture, for example. Oh, oh, uh, is it, which one is it? Um, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay. Okay, I can do all things through. I can, I can get through this bad time with my boss. By the way, what they do is you take a scripture completely out of context, right? And you use that scripture to get you through. Now, by the way, let me say this. What you're doing there is you're kind of using the Bible as a self-help guide, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like somebody writes a book and, and, and they put up these little pithy sayings and we all, you know, we put them all over our offices and stuff like that. It's kind of like you're doing that in a sense. But by the way, I will tell you this, I don't think, um, I think that's to be expected when you're young, Christian. Remember what uh, Peter says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. That's how babies would do, right? When you're a, a, a newborn Christian, when you're an immature Christian, the word, you're, you're looking, give me a scripture. I, I need something, right? You're, you're, it's almost like grabbing on, everybody with me? Okay, but, and, and that's fine, but you can't stay there. You see, as time goes by, the scripture, let, let me explain something. I think what we do in this class is very important. I think we come in here week after week and we're studying. What are we studying? The Word. And I think over time you should know the Word. You should be able to pull Philippians 4.13. You should be able to pull scriptures out that you know. But listen, the Bible, is ne- the, the, this Word has one purpose, and that is to form Christ in you. If 10 years from now, you're still... See, it's like, it's like I get a new job and they go out and say, okay, Derek, we need you to do this and here's the manual, right? And the first time they ask me to do that on my own, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to that manual and I'm going to say, okay, step number one, do this. Step number two. 10 years later, should I still have to go do that with the manual? No. no. Why not? Where, where is that knowledge? It should be ingrained in me. It should be a part of who I am. See, that's what we're doing. When you study the Bible, you meditate on Scripture. It's not just so I can memorize it and pull it out like a self-help. It's so that it becomes part of who I am. That Christ is being formed inside of, of me. So, again, just as a baby moves on from milk, God never intends Scripture just to be to work like that. When it's done its work, in a mature Christian, it's meant to form Christ in you, right? I no longer need Scripture as just a self-help exercise. I have the mind of Christ. When I go into a situation now, I'm not thinking, well, now, is there a Scripture? 
that says, you know, some, everybody with me? I just immediately, okay, I need to forgive them. Do you see the difference? It's, I'm not forgiving because Scripture says I'm... See, early on, I need a Scripture that says you need to forgive. 70 times 7. But years later, when I walk into that situation, forgiveness to just be a part of who I am. Do you see the difference? Because that Scripture has formed Christ in me. I'm beginning to think like Him, see like Him, feel like Him. And that's one of, to me, watch Christians and you can tell over time, is Christ being formed in them? Okay, is Christ being formed? You just begin to walk and act and think like a little Christ. It's not about what, is, what does the manual tell me to do. It's now a part of who I, uh, who I am. So again, what happens in that situation is trials and troubles and bad days are no longer these pits of despair and worry that I fall into. Now when I go through things, I can recognize them as God's will. I can recognize them as God's work. Um, I can now, by the way, those same opportunities, that used, things that used to drag me down, now they're opportunities that I can take joy in. Look what uh, James says in 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or faithfulness. And faithfulness produces, uh, make, or faithfulness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, that's what's happening with us is, is the Word is forming Christ in us. And as we go through things, we realize now, oh, this is the, you know, God's given me an opportunity here to, to grow and mature in Him. So last thing we're going to cover real quick. How does it happen? How is Christ formed in you? It's really quite simple. It's all about faith. It's all about trusting Him to do it. The Son of God comes and shapes us from within if we rely on Him to come and shape us um, with, within. The Son takes shape in those who abandon themselves to Him. We said it earlier, it, it's, it's, it's as easy as turning over the clay to the potter and saying, you do it. But it's also as hard as turning the clay over to the potter and saying, you do it. Right? But it's, it's all about um, faith. It's, it's about understanding that we've got to take our amateur hands off the situation and let God do it. It's just faith. That's all it is. Um, by the way, faith is the assurance that what God will make of you it's vastly superior to anything you'll ever make of yourself. That's what faith is. Faith is the confidence that what Christ can do in your life is going to be more wonderful than all the praise you could ever get for yourself. And faith is resting not only in what Christ did on the cross, but what He's doing now in our heart and what He promises to do for us uh, forever. In today's message or passage, we see two... Um, ways of thinking that are diametrically opposed to one another, right? The Judaizer's message caters to your pride. It caters to those desires to be self-righteous, to be self-made. Um, in other words, get glory for yourself. Paul's message robs us of all of that, takes all of that away and says you need to be Christ-made. At the end of the day, that's what it all comes down to. You're going to be self-made or you're going to be Christ-made. You're going to let Derek remain in control or you're going to let Christ be formed inside of you and take control which one is it you know do I do I am I the captain of my own ship or do I turn it over to him and let him run things that's that's what it's all about it's a decision that each one of us have to make God is never glorified by self-wrought moral aesthetic or technical achievements of human life anything we can do on our own does not give him 
glory. He's glorified when we turn from ourselves and trust Him like little children to enable us to do His bidding. And, and by the way, that's the best news in the world because it opens salvation up to who? Everybody. You know, that's the most beautiful thing about it. He just says, whoever you are, whatever you are, give yourself to me and let me do it. And that, that opens it up to everybody. Okay? You don't, he don't say, hey, you've got to meet this certain uh, status or this certain level of spirituality, then you can come to me. He says, no, you've got to throw all that away and come to me and depend totally and completely on me. And again, that opens it up to everybody. Um, Jesus said this, I was thinking about this week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, to be poor in spirit is to recognize your utter, utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. It means to recognize I got nothing to give Him. I got nothing that's worth anything um, to offer Him. It's admitting that because of your sin, you are completely destitute spiritually. By the way, it is only in that state that you can find salvation, and it's only in that state that you'll ever find true freedom. It's depending totally and completely upon the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Galatians 4. We thank you.